As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Hi Joe. Hello, how are you? Yeah. Fine. You know. Well, we're miserable because there's no Seb today. Because he's got bad internet in Germany, where you would have thought it would all be fine. We'll be talking today, though, about some interesting things. Uh, Marcel Brands, of course, has uh, left Everton, so we'll talk about that. And his, what do they call it, Uh, his legacy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, legacy. Jude Bellingham did a thing, we'll talk about that. A little bit on Manchester United's new uh, system, first game under Ralph Rangnick, of course. Um, And then we've got some Aston Villa, Leicester City, West Ham and Chelsea. Very exciting. What an exciting day. But also, you know what else is an exciting day? I'm going to stick my neck out and suggest that the answer isn't Tuesday. It's not Tuesday, but it's every day that I look at The Athletic. Which could be a Tuesday, because there's always good content on a Tuesday. Yeah. Did you read anything exciting over the weekend? Uh, not over the weekend, but I did this morning, very mm. helpfully, <laughs> read some stuff on the train coming up mm. about Marcel Brands. Oh. Uh, yeah, Paddy yeah. Boyland and Greg O'Keefe. All stuff you knew already, of course, you. But any ordinary reader would, sure. would be learning a lot from that. Great so deal many, of value. So many things they would learn. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, you can learn for free for 30 days by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And join us in our heaven of fun. Mm. The Athletic. You can't put a price on education. Well, some people do. Well, I think your parents did. (laughs) But maybe they were wrong too. Who could say? Who can say? Anyway, I'll leave you now in the warm hands and the cool embrace of private education. That's Alex. Just to be clear. Let's pick things up at the beginning here with uh, Marcel Brands, who was Everton's football director? Yeah, yeah, director of football. He worked under, obviously, the ownership structure and alongside a manager, although the relationship between managers and directors of football changes depending sure. on the appointments. So sure. you have a certain, like he had a certain kind of relationship with Marco Silva, which was much more, it appears, 
discursive and collaborative. By the time Rafa Benitez came in, Benitez was much more, no, I don't want to say dictatorial, but, mm. but had his own very strong opinions on the kinds of players that the, the club should be signing. And of course, what that does is it creates a process by which a club is kind of zigzagging between different types of targets. Mm. And that is not an ideal circumstance for a club to operate in, but particularly for a director of football to operate in. Yeah, we've seen that uh, fairly recently a few times in the Premier League, haven't we? Teams going, managerially speaking, from one style of football to a complete different... I mean, is there's quite a big jump between Carlo Ancelotti and Rafa Benitez, isn't there? Who, it's worth pointing out, the club have um, reaffirmed their support for. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a jump there. There's also a jump uh, almost philosophically between... Marco Silva and, and Ancelotti. So you've got a person who is looking to develop younger prospects, wants to integrate players from the youth team towards someone like Ancelotti, who's much more in tune with working with an established squad, bigger name players. That's why someone like James Rodriguez came in. And now Benitez, who particularly, I think, based on the kind of work that he's done, his reactive football, his kind of low block and then counter-attacking style, which is why experienced players like Andros Townsend mm. and Rondon are helpful for that. But it, it does seem like it's not just the style of football, although obviously that is significant. It's also the kind of the operating ethos of the club as well can transition yeah. significantly. Well, given that he was a football uh, director, Marcel Brands, the main part of his job would be, uh, at least the most public part of his job, would be bringing in new players. Mm. Um, there's quite a big legacy there. Everton has spent a lot of money in the last few years, you know, in pursuit of those slightly different styles. As we said, we were talking earlier about how exciting they were at the beginning of last season, having brought Alain and Decore and Rodriguez in. You remembered this hammering of Spurs at the beginning of the season, mm. which was exciting. Couldn't be further from that now. I mean, I think there's eight eight games without a win in a row now. Um, but let's have a look back at uh, some of their uh, some of their purchases over recent seasons, because uh, as we said, lots of money spent. Yeah, so it's it's running close, according to transfer mark, to about three hundred million, uh, and obviously that's only fees. That doesn't take into account wages, yeah. agent fees, so on and so forth. So there are some definite hits on this list. So if you go back to 2018-19, Luca Digne, the yeah. left back, has has excelled. Mm -hmm. um, Richarlison, I would say everybody agrees, is a very, very good player. Sure. Going forward slightly, I think someone like Gabamin could have been really good, but he's just had a horrendous time with injuries. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly unfortunate. It is difficult to find anyone else in the 1920 cadre that is particularly impressive. Who have we got on the list? Alex Iwobi, Moise Keane, Andre Gomez, Fabian Delph, Jibril Sidibe. I mean, it's not, it's not amazing. Sure. Um, but then moving forwards into 2021, Ben Godfrey, very smart signing, which mm -hmm. apparently Bill Kenwright was quite involved in. Alain Decouré, who I think, as we both agreed before the podcast, has been one of their outstanding players. Um, Rodriguez, I think, is a really interesting one because obviously he... He kind of changed the tone of the way they played. He yeah. did produce moments of real quality. He lifted supporter expectations, but also in you know he kind of made supporters feel good about stuff. So yeah. th there's a value to that. And he was thing. good at the beginning of the season, at least. Yeah, exactly. And now you've got a really interesting situation where they've only spent two million in this last window, and that was for Damari Gray, who mm. I think has been good. Was Townsend on a free? Townsend was on a free. Uh, Begovic was on a free as well. well. Yeah, who knew? Mm. Uh, and Rondon was on a free. Right. So that does potentially indicate that there has been a tightening of the belt, which I think is, is probably fair to say. Yeah. But also 
these are players that are the kind of players that Benitez wants to work with. You know, they have a certain physical profile, they're experienced in the Premier League, they're good at counter-attacking football. And I think, you know, Everton's form has ebbed away because, again, at the beginning of this season, we were looking at a team that weren't necessarily really exciting to watch, but were producing good counter-attacking football that was quite effective. Yeah. Um, that has kind of fallen off now. I mean, significantly. Yeah. Two draws in their last eight games, six losses. Uh, the draws uh, were, interestingly enough, <laughs> were at home to Tottenham with a red card and away to Manchester United, although seemingly that's fairly easy these days, or at least it was. Losses to Manchester City, losses to Brentford, Liverpool, West Ham, Watford. So not the easiest run, uh, but given how supporters felt towards Rafa Benitez, broadly speaking, when he arrived, having previously been the Liverpool manager, of mm. course, it's not a good start, is it? It doesn't. It's not going to help him win anyone over. No, I think that's certainly true. I think the other thing is that, generally speaking, it's fair to say the Premier League is kind of the, the home of the most innovative and modern coaching now. So obviously you've got arguably the three best managers in the world are all at Premier League clubs. Also, this kind of quite incisive, pressing, high-energy style of football seems to be making its way through the Premier League to greater or lesser effect. And then in Benitez, you've got someone who is kind of a throwback, who's a lot to do with defensive organisation, to do with counter-attacking, low block rather than press, that yeah. kind of thing. And so from a stylistic perspective, even if you didn't have the, the Liverpool connection, you've got a guy who's basically managing like five, ten years ago. And that's yeah. not thrilling either. What does that say about Everton as a, as a team, though, and their expectations and their desires? Because as you said, we go from Carlo Ancelotti, who left understandably to go and manage Real Madrid. Fair enough. I think that's you've got reasonable, to say. isn't it? Yeah. Um, Benitez, <laughs> uh, his most recent Premier League job was Newcastle, where he, he, you know, he did some fine work, of course, yep. and, uh, and all the supporters adore him there still. Um, but presumably that, that says something about your expectations as, as a club, right? If you're going to hire a manager like Benitez, knowing how he plays and, and mm. what he's there for, is it unfair to call him the sort of highest possible profile version of Sam Allardyce? I th <laughs> that sounds really unfair when it I finish really the sentence. Unfair. It is, it is he, really unfair. Because he's also a winner, right? Right. And, he, you know, he's won the Champions League. He's done phenomenal work at other clubs, particularly, I think, Valencia. I think the issue that you have is that, like I say, football has moved on. But also Everton are a really weird club in terms of they are traditionally one of the bigger clubs in England. They've had periods of really sustained success. Yeah. But also they have sort of yo-yoed between that, you know, kind of the, the aspirational eighth to sixth place. You know, oh, yeah. we, we should be challenging for the bottom end of Europe, that kind of thing, towards this feels more like a retrenchment, more a sense of... Premier League survival is the crucial thing. I mean, I'm not saying that Everton are going to get drawn into a relegation battle, mm. but there is a difference between appointing a young, progressive, ultimately not very successful coach in, in Marco Silva or a big name like Carlo Ancelotti and then someone like Benitez, who is much more reactive and much more traditional. And that feels like Everton saying security over ambition to a degree. Which team is it, though, in the Premier League that has made that choice in the top half of the table, let's say, for Everton's sake, in the last five years, and it's been the right thing to do. I mean, we, you know, like a good example recently, I suppose, would be Mourinho going to first Manchester United and then Tottenham. You could say, you could make an argument to say that there were different reasons why that didn't quite work out. But in terms of the style of football, it also wasn't really working 
outside perhaps of, of against some of the bigger teams. Is there another example of a team in a, a similar stature to Everton that have made that sort of stylistic choice and, and, and it's been successful for them? Gone for security over progression, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think of Everton, not perhaps right now, but in the same kind of position as, as uh, Leicester, for example, right? They're a team who now have some money, who have the ability to attract certain players. They might be able to reach the, the Europa League positions. They could have uh, attract players on the basis of them playing in Europe. Mm. They, have, they have a platform from which to kick on along with a, a, you know, a coming forthcoming new stadium too. Yeah. Rafa Benitez, it's not a criticism of him as a manager. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand why they've chosen him. Yeah, I'd say I'd say probably the most positive example of that would be Moyes at West Ham. Yes. Um, in the sense that obviously West Ham have had the London Stadium for a while now. They can't necessarily attract the right good calibre of player, but they've been very astute in the transfer market um, yeah. recently. And Moyes, I think, is characterised as a certain type of coach. And the work that he's done there is unquestionably brilliant. So is that the same sort of thing? It's hard to say. Again, you're also assessing these people by their their legacy, their previous jobs. You know, some of what Moyes has done previously at Everton, for example, in mm. terms of constructing a very, very well-drilled side relatively inexpensively. Um, and pushing them further and further up the table by increments, that is that is very successful. I think, you know, Moyes hasn't necessarily evolved enormously tactically, but you can't question his ability to find bargains and work as a man-manager. Sure, and yeah. he organises teams brilliantly. Like yeah. West Ham are great to watch for that reason. No, that's fair enough. Okay. Well, Everton currently 16th place. 15 points they are uh, five clear of burnley who are you know 18th in the in the relegation zone i'm looking at their team though they have a good team mm. this is like the, the the last match out and it's worth pointing out we're recording this on monday they play arsenal this evening everything we said could be completely different perhaps they'll win that game who knows but uh, the last game out it was against liverpool of course rondon and richarlison up front we've got townsend decore alan damari gray luca dinia Michael Keane, Ben Godfrey, Seamus Coleman. That's not a bad side. No, no. It's not a side that I would expect to lose, you know, or lose six of the last eight games, despite that fixture run being fairly difficult. They should be fine. Yeah, they should. I mean, obviously Mina is injured. Calvert-Lewin is injured. Mina contributes quite a lot in terms of set-piece threat as well. Calvert-Lewin is an exceptional forward. Which is the big story, right? He's been out for a long time. He has been out for a long time and, you know, you can see him dovetailing really well with Richarlison in a front two. Um, I, I just think that that maybe there's an argument that, that Everton's approach in the beginning of the season worked quite well as teams were adjusting to the pace picking up again. And so the way they were playing could work and teams are now adjusting to that. They are, they are pressing more. They're a bit more organised in that respect. Everton are struggling to match that because they're still playing quite reactively and haven't adapted. Mm. That's fine if you have really strong, aggressive forwards that can run the channels like Calvert-Lewin. But as soon as you take that ability away, they're just a little bit easier to work out than some other sides, I think. Okay. Well, we'll come back to talk about Everton again in the future. I'm sure. Next up, Jude Bellingham. <laughs> Referee thing. Did a thing here, which was mm. interesting. Uh, this came in the aftermath of uh, Dortmund's uh, hosting of Bayern Munich over the weekend. 2-3 was the result. Munich, of course, taking the points there. Jude Bellingham was uh, giving a post-match interview 
and referring with his comments to a penalty decision that he thought was the incorrect decision, a penalty given against Dortmund. And uh, he said, and I quote in his interview, you give a referee that has match-fixed before the biggest game in Germany, what do you expect? Now, what do you expect to be the result of that kind of comment, Alex? Um, I think Judah's probably going to be in some trouble for Mm. saying that. Mm. Um, you know, so Felix Weyer was involved in the 2005 Bundesliga 2 match-fixing scandal. He basically was part of a small group of referees who then handed in Robert Heuser, who was the kind of the referee who was the architect of that scandal. Um, mm. We did a, a video on match-fixing on the Illustrated channel, which covers some of this. But he did take money to fix or be part of fixing a result. Mm. So it's true in that regard. I think what's interesting about it is that Jude Bellingham is is a young man. He's grown up in England. Mm. He probably would not be aware of this scandal if it weren't something that all the players were aware of and talked about. Yeah, unless he watches TIFO. Unless he watches TIFO. Which is possible. Which is, which is possible. And I hope that he hasn't watched the video where I talk about how wonderful he is because I get a bit starry-eyed sure, and that would sure. be maybe slightly embarrassing mm. for both of us. But it, yeah, it would Just indicate that... <laughs> it would yeah, only be embarrassing for you. That is probably sure. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it would indicate, I think, that, that there is a lack of confidence that the players have in this particular referee. I mean, yes, yeah. okay, after a result goes against you and there's a contentious decision, then it is likely that you'll feel aggrieved towards the arbiter of that decision, irrespective of any context. Yeah. But at the same time, for an 18-year-old English player who has come into the league like a year and a half, two years ago, mm. to be aware of something that goes back to 2005 and yeah. reference it in a post-match interview indicates that it is common knowledge. And how, therefore, can the players have a great deal of confidence in that referee's ability. C- do you think then, like, hypothetically, mm. and I'm just trying, I think your point is correct. Not not how does he know about it? It sounds like he couldn't have researched this stuff on his own, right? But it's probably unlikely uh, that uh, he's come across it in his extensive reading of the history of German football. I, I think that, I don't know Jude Bellingham, but I think that's unlikely. Is it more possible that the players have a nickname for the referee or if a decision goes against them, this referee gives the decision, maybe they're uttering under their breath or they're in their dressing room Mm. saying, you know, basically the equivalent of that match fixer. I think the thing with match fixing is that, and this was something that I came across when I was researching the video that I wrote, is that Mm. it's endemic in certain areas, um, you know, less well-developed leagues abroad, but to fix matches in even the second tier of European football is incredibly Mm. difficult sure, because there's so much oversight and things get talked about. It's much easier to hide it somewhere else. Sure. Too many people know about it. Too many people know about it. The games are too watched. Exactly. And so I think there is a surprise factor to a referee being able to do this. And apparently in terms of Heuser, quite consistently over a relatively um, long period of time, that it should stick out more. It seems, yes, I, I think it's very unlikely. It's not unlikely, I don't know, but this is something that happened 16 years ago when Bellingham was two. So Christ, when you say 16 years ago, like that after you said 2005, I have a little heart attack. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, we're almost in 2022. 
But yeah, I think it's extremely possible that, that something like that is lodged in the players' minds because of the infrequency of that kind of event. Yeah. Um, and so I would therefore struggle to understand how that referee has the same degree of authority. Now, of course, that's within the context that we're discussing where a decision has been a contentious one. Yeah. He's probably refereed loads and loads and loads of games without there being any contentious decisions and nobody talks about it. Sure. So yeah. is it just that when something like that happens, there is an easier avenue by which to attack him than there would another referee? Yeah. It's like every time I burgle a home, right? I walk past hundreds of homes without burgling them. Mm. But just that every time that one home, and then it's like a big thing, you know? Jude Bellingham, though, does it does it tell us anything about his attitude, you know, as a kind of, not in a kind of, he's got an attitude way, but, you know, his general attitude as a football player, uh, he's been sort of pinpointed before as someone who could be a leader in the future. Mm. You know, the position that he plays on the pitch suggests that he has a vision and ability and is a good communicator. Yeah. It's an interesting, it feels, and he, he someone like he says that, it's a choice to say it, isn't Completely it? Completely like, that. Yeah. Yes, I think it's really interesting. I mean, if you read about Bellingham, one of the things that, that stands out is his willingness to learn about stuff, uh, including clearly match-fixing scandals, sure. and his maturity. And, the, you know, as, as any young man or woman who moves abroad and lives in another country for professional reasons at yeah. that age, that does require a great degree of maturity. So yeah. this is not, there's nothing that I've read about Bellingham that indicates he would make sort of knee-jerk comments that he would not speak without considering quite carefully before he spoke what he was saying. Yeah. It does feel like, yeah, a deliberate choice. And I think it also speaks to a growing leadership role in the Dortmund dressing room. He's appointed himself the spokesman for the team in that regard and and to get this off the chest, which is presumably like a corporate decision, mm. not corporate in the sense of the club. Sure, yeah a group of people in the dressing room feel aggrieved by this thing and he is yeah. the one that steps forward and eloquently discusses it. Mm. So I think it's a really interesting indicator of how he views himself within that dressing room. I'm very curious to see how lengthy any potential ban that he will earn will be because it's yeah. a fairly serious uh, accusation. It is a fairly serious I mean, he's not, serious I he's not making an accusation in, in directly, but well, he, yeah. he, he, again, we'll say for people, for those who've forgotten from the five minutes ago, you give a referee that has match fixed before the biggest game in Germany, what do you expect? I mean, it's, it's vague enough that maybe perhaps his match fixing experience has made him nervous as a referee and therefore he's making mistakes. You know, you could argue that that's you, what he's saying, absolutely right? absolutely could argue Is it, that. It's quite, it's delicately spoken. Oh, I think... Yes, I think his words were. I mean, not that delicate. Fairly but. <laughs> carefully chosen. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. We'll find out. In fact, maybe listeners will already know. Again, it was a day ago that we said these things. Mm. Okay, we'll go for a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about a another. Uh, well, I was going to say another German, but that doesn't work. You know, we'll talk about Rafael Nick. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, let's talk now about Ralph Rangnick, who is Manchester United's new interim manager. He oversaw the first game this weekend against Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace. A 1-0 victory. I did know that. I watched the highlights. Anyway, it was quite interesting, wasn't it? He used the famous 4-2-2-2 system, Alex, which, it strikes me, has already been used in the Premier League, of course, uh, by another Ralph. Mm. And it's your Ralph. It's Ralph Hasenhutl. My Ralph, yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about the system, broadly speaking. We can apply it to the Manchester United players. But for now, what is the point of it? Because it seems very narrow. Yeah, it is quite... Quite narrow. I suppose it depends on how aggressive your fullbacks are. They are the ones who are predominantly looking to create width. Although also what you'll see, and so when Leipzig were doing this system a lot, you'd have one of the strikers very often pulling wide and quite deep. So it would be, generally speaking, Yusuf Poulsen would take up positions wide left and then he could drive forwards on a kind of out-to-in run or potentially tuck inside and allow a fullback or a wingback to overlap. The main point is, I suppose, that the attacking players are the two tens, as it were, occupy the half spaces. So they they are up, but in slightly from where they might be in a traditional 4-4-2 as kind of either orthodox wide midfielders or wingers. And that allows teams to build through the half spaces, which generally speaking are better places to attack because if you're facing a back four, then there is a natural kind of channel between the centre-back and the full-back and the half-space is an area that you can overload. At its best, that system has a reasonable amount of rotation. The sixes, the defensive midfielders, will push up into the central spaces. There will be overlaps and underlaps from the wide defenders, the, the full-backs and wing-backs. The strikers will pull wide or tuck in. So it should be quite mobile and quite flexible. And also then it allows you to have... Uh, four or six players in the central areas for counter-pressing, which is obviously crucial mm. because you want more players around the ball in order to press and then spring forwards uh, yeah. in, when you're back into an attacking transition. And we saw that fairly aggressively uh, against Crystal Palace at times. It, I mean, the ge- it was worth pointing out that the game wasn't hugely exciting. It wasn't the sort of classic display or anything. But those initial signs of those tenets are, are there. And uh, Ralph Rennick said after the game that he was pleased and surprised with how well the team had taken to it. Players that seemed to particularly stand out from the highlights, Victor Lindelof was one of them, who was extremely high up the pitch, uh, pressing alongside Harry Maguire, but making lots of tackles and you know starting, starting attacking play with nice passes, much more direct than they would normally be. Uh, Fred, of course, who will come on to talk about, scored the winning goal. But also, Sancho had a nice game and Ronaldo wasn't alone up front. Marcus Rashford was in a slightly more central position too. The difference, I suppose, with this fixture was that uh, Diogo Dallo and, uh, and Alex Telles were the fullbacks. Now, one of the things we've talked about before as it relates to these, I suppose, slightly more narrow systems up front is that it really does require good fullbacks. It requires fullbacks who have lots of energy and lots of attacking intent. And that's something that perhaps Manchester United have struggled with a little bit in the past, 
Maybe certainly with Wambasaka on the right hand side. Yeah, Wambasaka's kind of like a progressive cul-de-sac. You know, once the ball goes to him, it's unlikely that unless he carries it forwards, it's going to move particularly vertically. And teams have certainly basically sat off Wambasaka or, or pressed or marked in such a way as to funnel possession towards him. Yeah. Because then it doesn't really go anywhere. Let me ask you this about him then specifically. He was a very raw talent at Crystal Palace, right? He was brought into Manchester United and has predominantly played under Solskjaer. We are aware of the seeming coaching issues during that period of time, right? wan is still a young player. Is it possible that he's just not been guided correctly? Is it possible that yeah. now under Rangnick... You might see, because he, he seems to have all of the talent. We know that he's capable. What he's quite good at is beating one player, right? Yeah. I think the issue is what happens after that. Yeah. But these things can be coached, right? His positional intelligence, which is not fantastic at the moment, can be coached. Do you think there's a, there's a chance that we'll see him improve a lot over the next year? Yeah, I'd hope so. I mean, you don't drop £50 million on a fullback who is an exceptional one-on-one -on -one defender. I mean one of the best in his position without question and then go oh well because he's not that great at passing we should just give it to the other guy that seems yeah. kind of stupid I think the issue is that for the development of the team as a whole Wambasaka needs to do that very quickly and it's always going to be a balance between playing a player alongside coaching him, obviously, so that he can work out these new situations and new responsibilities. Or going, well, he's not ready now and he's not going to be ready for a couple of months. But then by denying him the game time, you deny him the opportunity to practice those things and yeah. to make mistakes and learn from them. So it, it's a tough call. People have talked about, you know, potentially deploying wan as like an outside centre-back in a three. Some people have suggested he should play as a defensive midfielder. I think that's kind of insane. Yeah. Um, Ranić is going to come in and make tough decisions to get an immediate impact because he's not yeah. in the business of, you know, like obviously that they want to develop players. That's that's mm. always been part of the RB model, um, and they've used their parent club, child club. I don't know, feeder club, feeder club, go. yeah. Um, to the to, child club, the child yeah. <laughs> club. That's right. To to move players through, and so player development within a structure is super important to Ranić. But also he will have an expectation that a player who's cost £50 million and has started in that position pretty much... I mean, this is one of the weird things he started about, every game before he took a, he took a knock a couple right, of games and ago. And yeah. when United spent quite a lot of money on Tellers, who had mm -hmm. a fantastic record mm -hmm. um, before joining the club... He never looked likely to dislodge Shaw. It no. was kind of like... At the very uh, beginning when he arrived, it seemed that that might be the case. And then... Almost as if by magic, Luke Shaw was suddenly good and was undroppable within minutes of him arriving. Sure is good. But, <laughs> you know, Ranić's pressing system as well does require quite a lot of positional intelligence and discipline. So this was something that was visible in, in the match. He wants to make the, the pitch side a lot smaller. So he will, you know, if the ball is on the left-hand, United's left-hand side, then the players on the right really tuck in significantly. This is one of the points of the 4-2-2-2 is you get that overloading of numbers in central areas. Mm. And 
he may just worry that, you know, if, if Wan-Bissaka is, is too far over or too near in or something, that, that it's going to disrupt that kind of shape. Also, they have to push very far forwards. Now, there is an argument for bringing Wan-Bissaka in because of his recovery pace and sure. his excellence in making recovery tackles. Yeah. If that high line that you were talking about is bypassed, then having Wan-Bissaka in the side is actually extremely useful. Yeah. But does it narrow too much of uh, their attacking play down the right-hand side? And could it cause positional problems when they're pressing? Possibly as well. Diogo Della was also very good in this game. He's a very good player. Alex Telesh was also really good. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they are both excellent fullbacks who, for mm. some reason, just never got a look in. Yeah. Confusing. Well, mm. anyway, I'm sure we'll see more as those games go on. Uh, we, we said we'd talk about Fred as well, who uh, scored the winning goal with his right foot. Very impressive. We, we've mentioned this a, a couple of episodes before. We've talked about it. Um, I know JJ's mentioned it in a tactical analysis video that he made about a week ago. Fred is exactly the kind of player that could really thrive under this Rangnick system. Can you tell me why that is the case? Because we, we're seeing it, I think, but I'd like to understand what it is, what, what changes have occurred that have uh, enabled this. I think there's two really important things. The first is the in-possession United's DMs were being asked to drop off and really facilitate build-up from the back, but because of other stuff that we've talked about in the past, particularly with McTominay, this wasn't really happening. You have two players who are not necessarily instinctive DMs. Going way back when, when Fred was at Shakhtar, he would drop off and do this, but he would, generally speaking, he would carry the ball forwards mm. rather than than then try and create line-breaking passes himself. And of course, in Lindelof and Maguire, Man United have two centre-backs who are actually pretty good at their own kind of passing game. Yeah. So what it allows Fred to do in possession now is much more of a kind of shuttly, quick pass and move mm. style, much shorter distances, much less of an expectation of penetrating the lines with his passing. And that suits his style. A harrier. Yeah, and, and, and out of possession. I mean, one of the things that Fred's always been good at is pressing yeah. and working really hard off the ball. He's, He's quite a, springy, isn't he? Yes. As in, like, he kind of moves from player to player very quickly. Yeah, he moves from He's player really to player. He's really good at turning. His turning circles are great. Right, and he also has a, and this is, again, something that JJ's highlighted before is he's really good at knowing where to fill in when other players push forwards. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying that Fred is as good as Conrad Lima because he's not, but he, he will fulfill that sort of role. So he will be in possession. He will be a, a useful link player who keeps things relatively simple, but has yeah. the energy to be in the right place at the right time to continue the ball progression forwards quickly. He will fill in when other players are pushing up He'll allow United to press higher up the pitch because he also has the energy to get back and recover into that space. And he will make sure that their press is fairly coordinated, which is obviously the biggest single thing that Rangnick has to improve. Mm. Okay. Well, it's curious, isn't it? It's quite mm. fun. Quite fun to see him scoring a goal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember there being a joke not so long ago. It sounded like from within the dressing room that uh, he should never be allowed to shoot because he can't shoot. Someone laughed at him, didn't they? Yeah, I've always been a bit more up on Fred than most people. Mm. And and I feel, I don't feel vindicated because whatever. But, you know, it's nice. Sure. There we go. Now, let's talk about Aston Villa. Two, one Leicester City. You watch this game. Uh, here are my notes. Leicester are bad. <laughs> 
Two more goals conceded uh, from uh, from defensive set pieces, um, taking it to 10 for the season. That's bad. I've written that there. Um, I believe that's first in the league for that particularly bad. You don't want to be first in, in the league for that. Uh, they're on a bad run. I've written bad four times here. I don't really know why. <laughs> I was hoping you would explain it to me because I thought they were good, but apparently uh, not right now. And And also before we started the podcast, JJ told us, that in the second season of his football manager save, they got relegated. Wow. So not that that actually means anything, but, you know, fun titbit there. Sure. Tit-tit-bit? Tidbit? I titbit, isn't it? Is it a tidbit? I don't know. I'll look it up and you talk. Please do, um, because we all need to know that. Uh, yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because, the, I, so I think basically, yes, they can't defend set pieces. Like, they are so bad at defending set pieces. And this is... A problem with this slightly weird hybrid of, of zonal and man marking, what it does is it exposes players who are zonally marking, and I'm thinking particularly of Soyuncu for the second goal, mm. who was kind of being expected to contest a header without having any awareness that Konsa was steaming towards him and was going to have the jump on him and the momentum. I think Schmeichel has dropped off significantly this season as a goalkeeper. He looked quite flappy like he was trying to get to the ball from some of those corners and trying to assert himself but mm. it just wasn't working he didn't have a great game i mean he also not helped by game. the fact that he appeared to be being booed by the uh, aston villa fans from the half time onwards due to the uh, goal that they felt should have yeah. been allowed um which I, i've got stuff to say about but i'll wait for you okay. to finish i'm thrilled to hear that mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. And so, yes, he's, he's sort of trying to climb over players, but because of this zonal marking system, the players are quite close to him. He would also have quite often one or two Villa players on him impeding his progress that weren't being pushed out of the way by any man markers. So that their whole defensive set-piece system is, is bad. I think they're also just missing... I mean, they're missing Fofana a lot. Uh, I thought yeah. Evans was actually relatively lucky not to concede a penalty for kicking Jacob Ramsey in the air. And Evans has looked a bit off the pace. I think sometimes with defenders, when they start getting more angry and aggressive, it's because their skill set is dropping off. This is certainly, I'm basing this on how I used to play five-a-side football. Yeah. And Evans seems to be kind of compensating Schmeichel to a degree as well. Sure. By being ragey because he just knows he's not quite as good as he used to be. Yeah. Vestergaard hasn't been given a chance. Amati's actually pretty good at filling in, but mm -hmm. is quite, I mean, Leicester are quite a short team as well, which is why you think someone like Vestergaard would make a significant difference because he's like six foot five or something. Sure, but They just seem to be struggling. And it's interesting now that Madison's back, now that Barnes is back, they should have enough going forwards to be able to take Indeed. most teams apart. Barnes with a lovely goal in this game. Yeah, lovely goal. Mm. But but Villa defended really resolutely. They had this weird kind of on paper a four two three one that actually looked a bit more like quite a lopsided four three three with McGinn doing a lot of work. Lovely to see marvellous Nakamba yeah. um buzzing around and making a nuisance of himself as well. Yeah. So I Bundia, think Bundia I thought played well too. And Bundia has always been a good pressing front 
foot defender, which again allowed, and Watkins is, is excellent at that mm. as well. So it, yeah. it made it really hard for Leicester to play through Villa. Yeah. Three wins in four for Steven Gerrard's Aston yeah. Villa. They're certainly playing faster, aren't they? That's the key thing. Mm. Yeah. There, there's a lot more intensity. They're, they're pressing better, I think. And it's interesting because we, we did a Villa video way back it would have been their first season back in the Premier League where we talked, they, they were in danger of going down. And we said, you know, what are the things that Villa need to do to stay up? And one of the things was to push the defensive line forwards and, and press more aggressively in the midfield area. Yeah, And they kind of did that under Dean Smith for a while. But Gerard really seems to have concentrated on this, quite an aggressive battling, you know, even though McGinn's yeah. a creative player he is also the sort of player who really makes a nuisance of himself in those areas. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, to think with Gerard? he's obviously just come from a winning team. Yeah. And you, you know, install him in a dressing room where the team, you know, at least very recent history would suggest hadn't, haven't performed hugely well in terms of this season under Dean Smith. But if he brings not just that mentality, but also that approach to games, that mm. expectation that you're going to get something out of it, you play faster, you play in a slightly more aggressive style, it can lead to results, can't it? And clearly it's doing so. Yeah, I think so. And, and that is a team that does have players in it whose natural instinct is to, to go yeah. forwards and to attack space. So McGinn, Buendia, Watkins, Ramsey, Cash on the right-hand side from fullback. Yeah. They, they are all aggressive vertical players. And so by kind of taking the shackles off them a little bit and also encouraging the team to defend a little bit more like that, I think Gerard is playing to his strengths. One of the things that, that was noticeable from his time at Rangers, and I'm inferring this from what I've read rather than having ever really watched Rangers, mm -hmm. um, is that he's quite an adaptive coach. So Rangers were much more front foot and aggressive in the Scottish Premiership. And then when they played in Europe, they were more cagey and counter-attacking. And this is obviously a sensible choice. But I think what it means is that Gerard is not necessarily wedded to one particular style of play he will look at what works and try and impress that, but but is quite happy to change things on mm. a game-by-game -game basis. And it seems like, you know, people know that Leicester have a soft underbelly at the moment. So yeah. target set pieces and, you know, aggressively attack them, particularly in the midfield area, and you'll quite possibly get a result. That's what he's done. It's very sensible. Well, we, we, interesting uh, fixture run coming for Aston Villa in December. Of course, they are in their next game on a Saturday. They're away to Liverpool. Gerrard going home there. That's going to be fun. Uh, a trip to, to Norwich Tuesday after that. But then uh, following against uh, Burnley, Chelsea, Leeds. I think Manchester United to come up in January too. So it's it's half and half there. The half games you would definitely expect them to win. Yeah. If they do win those games against your Norwich, Burnley, Leeds perhaps, that's, I think, the thing that's going to really create that distance between them and the relegation zone. But I'm really curious to see how they perform in those in those other games against the bigger challengers. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see whether he's much, much more cagey and reactive. Because he wasn't against Man City loads. No, not loads. And and with a player like Watkins, you've always got the option to launch balls forwards and get him attacking the channels mm. and, and creating problems. And with someone like McGinn, who can then push up from midfield to get into the box on the end of that sort of stuff, Watkins is really hardworking. Yeah. really pulls teams apart and, and disrupts defensive structures. So you, you can see a way that Villa would approach those games. Obviously, it's quite hard to see them getting results in some of them. But mm. I think Gerard is in a good position because he has clearly had some sort of impact on the team. But there is also definitely room for him to grow into that and to, yeah. to get 
I think, a bit more tactical shape and tweaking. Or to adjust to some more realistic expectations <laughs> over the next month. Yeah. Yes, that's also probably <laughs> yeah, true. Maybe we'll see that. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the, the, the name of the player who tried to score that goal when Ramsey. Schmeichel had his hand on it. Was it, was it Jacob Ramsey? Yeah. So it was interesting as I was, I was watching Match of the Day uh, and they sort of did the whole thing. Uh, they talked about the rule that related to this. So for those of you who haven't seen this incident, uh, Schmeichel makes a save. The ball kind of rebounds off him a little bit. It's on the floor and then he stretches a hand out and has one of his hands almost entirely over the ball, touching it between his hand and the, and the floor. Uh, Ramsey then kicks the ball into the goal from that position and that's why it's judged to be a foul. On match of the day, they seem to get very confused about this sentence. I'll read this sentence to you now, which is the rule. It says the ball is uh, between the hands or between the hand and any surface, e.g. the ground or their own body, or by touching it with any part of the hands or arms, except if the ball rebounds from the goalkeeper or the goalkeeper has made a save. And the second part of that sentence is what was confusing people because Schmeichel had just made the save and the ball had rebounded from him. But that comes after the big or in the sentence. The first part of the sentence says that if the goalkeeper has it between the ground and his hand, then it is adjudged to be within his possession. Very clearly, that is the case. Mm. The second part of the sentence doesn't change the first part of the sentence. And I think they missed the or. And then they spent 30 seconds talking about how there should be more punctuation in the thing. I really didn't think it was that complicated. I, I needed to learn. I didn't know before it happened because that that sort of incident doesn't occur very often. No. But once I'd read the rule, it seemed kind of straightforward. I don't, I personally don't quite see what the point of the second bit of that clause is. I think that is, so this is why I was thinking if the ball's in the air, right? So say for example, that uh, the, the, the ball had bounced off the goalkeeper yeah. and just out of his touch and he jumped up and had a hand on the ball in the air, but then a player headed it into the goal from that position, right? That ball is not between the ground, uh, right. and, and, and the player is not between himself and his body. He's just he's just trying to save it, and it's rebounded. He's not in control of it. Sure. So it doesn't matter that he's touching it, uh, because he's not in control of the ball. Yeah. That's why. I mean, I, I don't know if Schmeichel was in control of the ball particularly. I think it's one of those odd things where... He had it pressed to the ground. Yeah, when you see it slowed down, mm -hmm. it, it obviously it looks much more like that. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest, my general rule of thumb with these sorts of things is that once a decision is made, who really cares anyway? Sure. So, yeah. I don't really care about the decision. I cared more about the interpretation of the rule. Yeah. <laughs> I, I cared that it was... I felt like it was being made to sound more complicated, not intentionally, right. but I don't find it that complicated. And I don't know why, hey, don't get me wrong, I, I particularly love Match of the Day too. I feel like the, the tactical analysis they do on that show is really fun mm. and they all do a fantastic job. It's not a personal criticism, but I was, I just wanted to take a moment to say, I didn't think the rule was that complicated. It really doesn't sound very complicated to me. Sure. No. There we go. Well, anyway, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Another uh, thing here, a tidbit <laughs> is actually a titbit in uh, the English English language is tidbit. In America, it's tidbit, tidbit. Right. Uh, but um, do you know what it originally meant, titbit? No. A small, I mean, it still kind of means this, but it can be applied in different ways. A small piece of tasty food, a delicacy, a morsel. Oh, no, I know that. Yeah. I wanted the etymology. Oh, uh, I can read it. If I can, it's really long. Yeah. Mm, could have been influenced by tit and tittle. 
or uh, Ted, uh, the t- Ted, the adjective Ted meaning playful, frolicsome, lively. Right. The noun bit meaning biting or bite. Bite the a lively, lively bite. A lively bite, a okay. frolicsome biting. Yeah. You yeah. know someone's set up some awful wanky street food stall called Lively Bite. Sure. Well, anyway, there we go. Let's have another break now. And when we come back, we will talk about West Ham. Okay, very briefly on West Ham, uh, who maybe deserve to be higher up the uh, <laughs> the running list here today. Um, they beat Chelsea. Was it 3-2? It was 3-2, wasn't it? Very impressive. Well done, West Ham. Tell me about that. First of all, it had a couple of lovely goals in it. Mm. Uh, Mason Mount's volley into the near post bottom corner was delicious. That'll be on next month's goal of the month award, I would have thought. Yeah, quite possibly as will Jared Bowens, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. who is, you know, kind of quietly becoming a really, really good player. Sure. There were lots of rumours about Liverpool being interested in him, weren't there? The yeah, there were, and you can kind of see the point. I mean, he's he's got a certain kind of aggressive profile. He is an out-to-in wide attacker. Um, he's got a good shooting range. Mm. You can see him... I mean, he's very much an understudy in that kind of Salah role, but there's, there's something there, I think. Um, West Ham capitalised on a bit of sloppiness and this was quite a mm. changed Chelsea side. Not entirely sure what happened for the third goal. I mean, it's it's one of those things. You could very charitably say that Masuaku spotted Mendy slightly off his line and I'm like, <laughs> really? I think Tuchel um, referred to it as a good cross after sure, the game. So, yeah. yeah. It, it, I think it was a I think it was a bad cross that got lucky. I mean, Mendy clearly is anticipating the cross. His his body angle is twisted slightly towards yeah. the left hand side, and that yeah. you know he he adjusts very slowly. But I think it's interesting that that West Ham now. I don't know. We probably still expect these sorts of games not to go their way. Yeah, but they very clearly don't. You know, they no. they very clearly are going into these, and they are in fourth and have been in the top six for pretty much the entire season, if I remember yeah. correctly. This well, also, it was interesting because they started the game a little bit more conservatively than they have done previous, which is understandable. They're yeah. playing Chelsea, right? But it was at half-time when they decided, no, we can get something out of this. That's a confidence that you really only get from from a team in form. I think that's absolutely right. And, and they're a team with a certain degree of certainty about aspects of their play. So they know that they have very aggressive, physically dominant central defenders. They know that they have in Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek a particularly good double pivot that can get up and down and complement each other really, really well. They know in Mikel Antonio, they have a striker who can cause problems to any defence yeah. in the league. He can create something out of out of absolutely any situation. Yeah. And will also work extremely hard and, and create space for those more slightly more flair attacking players um, mm. or indeed Masuaku to sure. cross. Yeah. Um, but that that kind of asset up front means that they know that they will always have an opportunity because Antonio will be able to bully a central defender into taking a step too far back and that will create space for Lanzini or Bowen to cutting inside that kind of thing. And that sort of weapon is really, really important. Plus, there's a solidity through the whole of the rest of the team that means that if they want to kind of sit back and camp out a little bit and get a feel for a game before they try and... They they can be adaptive in games, is my point. Yeah. 
how much they use Antonio going forwards, how vertical they go, how much they sit off and stay compact, they can adjust as they read a game as it progresses because of the security that they have, particularly in that kind of central square at the base of the pitch. Yeah. I mean, West Ham now sit in fourth place, 27 points after 15 games. Uh, They are eight points off Manchester City who are in first place. I'm not sure anyone is, is, is realistically expecting them to be title challengers but in terms of those top four finishing positions long way to go within the season Mm. is there anything that we see in their play so far that indicates that they're not possible for challenging that top four no 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 i don't see anything at all i mean i think that the the top three of the league table now are going to be the top three come the end of the season yes Really, um, the fourth place is a battle between West Ham, Tottenham, Man United and Arsenal, you would have thought. You would think that, uh, and it's going to be really interesting. Obviously, you know, two of those teams have got relatively new managers. Mm-hmm. Conte has played four Premier League games. Sure. Ranić has really only overseen one. So if those teams make significant improvements, that could imperil West Ham's position. Mm. But there's absolutely no reason why West Ham can't maintain this kind of form because they have, you know, yes, okay, like an injury to Antonio would be pretty devastating. But everything else about what they do and how Moyes has got them playing indicates that they're there for the long haul. Jorginho made another bad mistake. Yeah, a bit significant error. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of, I'm not sure, it's the second game in a row. I mean, certainly did it against uh, Manchester United, maybe it was uh, two games ago. Is this a kind of blip within his play or is this something that I should have noticed before? I always thought Jorginho was kind of Mr. Secure. Yeah, I think the problem is sometimes that because that that Chelsea defensive system with those three centre-backs, Mendy is a goalkeeper who's good with the ball at his feet and he obviously usually has another player alongside him in, in the midfield double pivot. Sometimes they even play two. Yeah. That he probably gets maybe an undue degree of security when he's playing back towards his own goal because there are so many passing options. They're often so well shielded that it is is quite easy maybe to switch off. And he does, you know, the ball goes through him a lot. So in terms of like a percentage number of mistakes, he's still incredibly secure. It's just that when those mistakes happen, if the ball is heading in that direction and you have a very kind of snappy, aggressive player who's seizing on that error, it's going to stick out more than a player who's making a mistake with like a lateral pass. Yeah. Okay. Bad timing, perhaps. Yeah. More than anything, I would say. Sure. Well, there we go. Um, That is all. Seb wrote loads of other stuff on here, including Tottenham 3, uh, nil Norwich. Tottenham, according to a Tottenham supporting friend of mine, not Seb, are playing well for the first time in many years. He said something about how coaching was good. There you go. Uh, We've talked about Aston Villa. St. Pauli, Schalke, Roma, Inter. Ah, imagine the treats we could be having if Seb were only here. But he's not. Mourinho's in trouble. He just loves to write that just, every week, doesn't he? He just wants to get started, Actually, he's he? written LOL in capital letters. Very unsaid. That, Very unsaid. Yeah. Uh, he hates that man. Anyway, there we go. If you wanted to know the inside story, journalists with agendas, there's certainly one there. Don't trust anything Seb ever says about Mourinho. Presumably, Seb can be encouraged to address this on his newsletter. Yeah, although his internet also wasn't working last night, so he didn't do that either. Oh. What can you do? Hamburg, huh? Hamburg. It's patchy. Who knew? I didn't know. Anyway, that'll do for now. Uh, Alex Stewart, thanks to you. Thank you. And uh, thanks as usual to producers uh, Sol and uh, Adonis. 
in the backgrounds there. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, with more of the same, some more exciting football stuff to, to look forward to. And hey, a little shout out now for, for something happening in about three weeks time, Monday the 27th. Uh, I'm setting myself a, an in real life deadline now that I can't push because I'm saying it on the podcast. <laughs> Monday the 27th of December, just after the Christmas weekend, of course, we're releasing a special episode of State of the Club. That'll be released on the TIFO Football YouTube channel. And it's all about Sir Alex Ferguson. There we go. So accompanying that in the week of the 27th, between Christmas and New Year, mm. will be a special podcast episode all about Sir Alex Ferguson, including two pretty fantastic guests, Ollie Kay and Danny Taylor. Exciting, isn't it, Alex? Yes, it's very exciting. Did you know that Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager when Aberdeen beat Real Madrid 2-1 in the 1983 Cup Winners' Cup. I oh my God, we're going to have to remake 15th. the episode. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> who, thankfully, who I did? sit next to JJ Bull. So uh, literally every day. Every day he comes in. Every single day. He won't let me forget it. New. No. Yeah, fine. Well, we'll be doing that. So look out for that. It'll be really fun. And in order to justify the amount of time and resource we've spent on it, I really need people to watch it. So that would be great if you can do that. There we go. State of the Club, Alex Ferguson, 27th of December. Also subscribe to The Athletic. We'll be back next week. So uh, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye now. Goodbye. Goodbye.